Hi, it's Tom here. Before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has supported our show by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, and most importantly, by donating. Spiked's content is free and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations and regular donations in particular that we've been able to keep going and growing. The Spike podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way that you can support us by checking out some of the deals that we're able to pass your way, but donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think that we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then please do consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. Even £5 each month can go a long way. So if you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spiked-online.com and clicking on the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Joe Biden's bid for the White House, the English Channel migrant crisis, and who decides what's racist. I have no doubt that I picked the right person to join me as the next Vice President of the United States of America, and that's Senator Kamala Harris. I am incredibly honored by this responsibility. You also work with them to oppose busing. Mischaracterizing my position across the board, I did not praise racists. If elected, she would be the first woman vice president, the first black vice president. She is a disaster. The current consensus is that the 2020 presidential election is Joe Biden's to lose. He currently has a comfortable lead in the polls. In Trump, he's facing a candidate in a uniquely weak position, with America having fared the worst of any country in the coronavirus pandemic. But Biden himself rarely appears in the spotlight. He's made few pronouncements on policy, and even some of his advocates argue that he shouldn't take part in the presidential debates. After weeks of deliberation and having promised to nominate a black woman, Biden has finally announced his choice for vice president, Kamala Harris. We're joined by Freddie Gray, editor of Spectator USA, for this section. Uh, Freddie, first of all, what do you make of Harris as a choice of VP? I think it's probably the most predictable and, and therefore the most boring choice. Susan Rice might have been more boring, uh, but actually I think Kamala Harris just pips her in the boring stakes. I think of Kamala like a, a sort of female version of Obama, really, or a West Coast version of Obama, just with a, a bit more balls. <laughs> Her campaign itself, her presidential campaign, was an amazing disaster, really, because she had considerable backing. She had the sort of West Coast power nexus behind her. She had the big Democratic families of the West Coast, the Feinsteins, the Pelosi's behind her. She had uh, Facebook. She had a lot of sort of Silicon Valley energy behind her, a lot of good tech, apparently, and all that sort of stuff, and a lot of hype. Media loved her. She looks like, you know, Hollywood's idea of what the first black woman vice president should look like. But then just voters didn't like her. I don't think Brits actually properly appreciate how annoying her Californian voice is to a lot of Americans. It's a sort of privileged Californian, quite croaky voice that really annoys people. A lot of people compare it to Marge Simpson. And then as her campaign failed, she started to blame people for basically being racist. She said, America's not ready for a black woman president, even though, of course, America had voted twice for a black man, I think they could probably make the step to a woman. I think they just didn't didn't like her. So I think she is a big risk on that front. But I do also think just because someone's a bad presidential candidate 
doesn't mean that there'll be a bad vice presidential candidate. And in fact, in terms of the optics, and American politics is a lot about the optics, the branding, I think her and Biden do seem quite a sort of new American pair. Tom, did you want to come in? Yeah, sure. No, it's been interesting kind of looking at it from afar because all of the fanfare around Harris is being picked for the VP. And yet you kind of, the more you dig into it, you more you realise what kind of husk she is. You know, looking back over the primary, she flip-flopped so much on policy, you know, over the course of that bid, whether it was on Green New Deal, Medicare for All, all these different issues, seemed to kind of really twist in the wind on that stuff. Didn't really seem to believe in very much at all. Remember what there was a New York Times line about her, which referred to her as a messenger, but one whose message is still a work in progress, which I thought was quite funny and quite revealing in some respects. And as Freddie was saying, her identity has been held up as a big plus, despite the fact that over the course of the presidential primaries, you know, she struggled with precisely the voters we're told she's going to help Joe Biden out with, you know, black voters, women voters, etc. I imagine a lot of the excitement about it is that the fact that it's less the change she represents, it's more the fact that it's kind of back to business as usual, insofar as she's that kind of centrist, loved among Wall Street and Silicon Valley. She's going to maintain the grip of that that wing of the party over the Democrats after a few years of kind of Sanders madness. But Freddie, one thing I want to ask you about was just Biden's campaign itself, because as you say, you know, the extent to which the VP pick is important, slightly more so this year, given the fact it's widely accepted that Biden might not actually make it to a second term, bless him. But how do you think his campaign's going at this point? This kind of very cautious path he's treading, not really leaving his basement, kind of just capitalising on the implosion of, of Trump rather than saying anything particularly interesting. Do you think that can pay off, that he can kind of coast his way to victory in the midst of all this? I think he may be able to just because Trump's handling of the pandemic has been so widely seen as awful and, and indeed it was chaotic. What sort of the media didn't notice very much was that he actually had quite a bad July. And in fact, the polls are sort of catching up with that. And, you know, he still has a handsome lead in most of the swing states, but there are states quite in Minnesota. Trump now seems to be ahead in Minnesota. Things are tightening in Florida, in Michigan, in Wisconsin. And I'd say until September, voters don't really focus on the election. So polls aren't actually that useful. And I think Biden, you know, the reason his campaign has been successful is because it's been a submarine campaign. They've just let Trump implode over coronavirus. But now as things get closer to the election, people have to focus on him. He has to emerge and he has to present his vision. And his vision is not terribly appealing to Americans who look at it very closely. He, he tries to sort of dissect everything. So on his website, you know, you've got like Joe's vision for African-Americans, Joe's vision for the Catholic community, Joe's vision for the trans community, etc. So he, he tries to sort of parcel it up and do as much kind of retail politics around it as he can. But it's all very, very vague. And you have to deal with the fact it's not just a right-wing talking point. You have to deal with the fact that he's not compassmentous. He's not all there. He has, you know, I'm not saying that Trump is a great model of sanity, but Biden is not is not right. And therefore, Harris is very likely, I'd say, to be the 47th president within the next four years. And, you know, she couldn't win herself, but she's, you know, America wasn't ready for Kamala Harris in terms of voting for her, but she, she could well just do it without winning an election by herself. Ella? It might seem naive to be talking about scruples when it comes to politics and definitely when it comes to uh, US presidential elections. But one of the things I was thinking about is the fact that Harris has made such a U-turn on her views about 
Biden himself is significant. I mean, she, she jumped in with two feet in relation to the allegations against him about groping and smelling people's hair and more serious things. She also called him a racist early on in the previous battles. She really set up that kind of identitarian opposition to him. And of course, she's swallowed all of that now because she's been given the top job. And you could just laugh that off as being a symbol of the sort of lack of scruples, lack of principles in these kind of political battles. But do you think it's more significant? Because I can see a Trump campaign weaponizing that, not just on a shallow level, but also because it's that kind of closed ranks, forget all our differences, we'll all slide in together attitude that the Democrats have that lost them the last election. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, the establishment comes together sense that gives Trump such a bolster in his campaign. So how is all of this going to affect Trump, do you think? And while you might argue that Harris has given Biden some kind of cover in the sense that her swallowing all of this means that hopefully in his mind, people will stop talking about his penchant for sniffing hair. Or actually, is it going to do the opposite? I mean, I think it makes Biden look magnanimous, which will make him more popular with voters. But I also don't do think it leaves this sort of slightly chilly, sour taste, which which is that it's all fake, right? So, you know, do we think Harris has suddenly changed her mind? Or do we think she just pretended to be offended at Biden's race record when she wasn't, because actually they've been friends all along? And Biden is very much like that. He's very much a Washington creature who's used to sort of performative rows. I mean, back in 2008, he was the vice presidential candidate and the Republican nominee was his great pal, John McCain. In my opinion, one of the most awful politicians that America's ever had. But they were really close buddies. And yet they would do a lot of this like rowing with each other publicly and Biden would like roll up his sleeves and say, if he wants to come and mess with me, he can come and mess with me. And it was sort of pathetic because everybody knew (laughs) that actually they were best friends, that their families are very close and so on. So it's it's very swampy. It's very Washington swamp to do these rows against each other when actually you just agree that it's tactical and it doesn't really matter and there's no hard feelings. I do think there are some people in the Biden campaign, unless this was also spin, that seem to be genuinely upset about the way Harris went after him. And that might be why it took them so long to confirm her, even though she was, in their minds, the front runner for a, for a long time. So I think that there might be some fractiousness if the campaign starts to fall apart. And finally, what do you think it means for Trump? I mean, can we really write him off this, this early? I mean, people wrote him off last time. No, I, I really don't think you can. I, I mean, I think it's such a chaotic year that predictions are even more useless than normal. And Trump is a very good campaigner. He can be a very good campaigner. And he has sort of moments of focus where he seems to be very shrewd. And he gave this speech at Mount Rushmore that even though his delivery is terrible, it was a very well-written, very clear speech where he touched on council culture. He touched on things that you know people really feel strongly about. And the sort of direction of the Trump campaign recently has been to go after, not Biden, because they haven't been very successful at going after Biden, but to go after what they call the radical left and the way in which local democratic leaders, mayors and governors have effectively cheered on as rioters have burned down American cities. And if they're able to get that message across enough, that could be a successful tactic. The problem is applying it to Biden and Harris, because Harris, as we know, is a very much a law and order person. And her weak point is the fact that a lot of people don't like her because she locked up so many people as an attorney general and as a prosecutor. 
So it's going to be difficult for the Republicans to attack Biden-Harris on law and order because between them, because Biden also in the 1990s passed laws that incarcerated enormous numbers of black people. So it's going to be difficult between them to sort of portray these two as hopelessly weak on crime when between them they probably imprisoned more black people than any other couple in America. One of the things I really like about Harry's is the smoothness of the shave. I'd actually been put off shaving for a while by other brands, so I was pleasantly surprised when I first tried out Harry's. And even when I've left shaving for far too long, because let's face it, during the lockdown when we weren't leaving the house, appearance wasn't a big priority for most of us, I still found Harry's to offer a fantastic shave. Harry's began with Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with overpriced razors who wanted to fix shaving. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. By taking less profit, Harry's offers a great quality product for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. A Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. It's got a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, It also comes with a rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. Get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcasts and get your trial set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash spiked right now. That's harrys.com slash spiked. Record numbers of migrants have been crossing the English Channel this month. More than 4,000 have reached the UK this year, five times as many as last year up to this point. Last week, a record 235 migrants were picked up by the border force in a single day. Many on the right, including Nigel Farage, have described the Channel crossings as an invasion. Home Secretary Priti Patel has vowed to get tough on the crossings. Critics say that there is no migrant crisis and that it's all just a big distraction from the government's incompetent handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Ella, um, what's your view? Does any of this matter? Yes, it does matter. It's mattered for a very long time. Part of the frustrating thing about this whole debate is that no one seems to want to put it into context. I mean, we had a much bigger migrant crisis a number of years ago where we were seeing huge numbers of people not just turning up in boats on the shores, but dying out in the Mediterranean not so long ago. As things in the Middle East go south, there's been a big issue with people making the trek across to Europe and ending up in the big Calais camp. Part of the frustrating thing as well is that I often feel that people think that because we've had the Brexit debate, the sort of discussion around immigration is a closed book, like as if it's already been decided. In actual fact, we've never had a, a sort of open and thorough democratic discussion about immigration in this country. You've had government jumping ahead and putting in place policies, some that have been accepted, like the points-based system, some that have been wildly immoral, like the Windrush scandal, with this kind of attitude that they know that the British people don't like immigrants, want to lower the numbers. And so we have to do something about this. When in fact, actually, I'm not convinced that that is people's attitudes. You have to look at why people are turning up in boats. And while I would defend the need for a border system, just even in terms of sort of instrumental reasons that you need to know who's in the country, but more importantly, that 
in order to argue for the rights of people to come here to make it a, a better life for themselves and for people in the UK to travel abroad, that you know, the idea that migration is in itself a good thing, something that benefits people's lives. You have to have a discussion about whether or not that's something that's a democratic demand. I myself would argue for a very open approach to borders. I hate the points-based system because it basically means that if you're middle class and got a lot of skills and cash, you can come here. But if you're a working class person who just wants to, not to be cliche, but change their stars, you've got no hope. But spinning this into some kind of very shallow uh, right and wrong, evil and good debate about the number of people that are turning up in boats is missing the broader point completely. Tom? I think the whole debate has been really quite shocking. There's this quite hysterical language from the right in relation to this, Nigel Farage going on about an invasion, a slightly kind of watered down version of that in response from the government, you know, Priti Patel appointing this clandestine channel threat commander, you know, kind of talking it up in almost militaristic terms. Often I think it's kind of tough talk to expose their own inability to really get a grip on this in line with what they feel their voters actually want. You know, it's easy to appoint these people and to do this kind of war talk without actually getting to grips with the issue at hand. But I think the kind of pro-migrant side on this has been particularly shocking. And as someone who, like Ella, is in favour of migration who wants a open policy in relation to people coming here it irritates me far more because it's so incredibly disingenuous limited and counterproductive you know the discussion first of all has been to try and downplay it so you people see people making the point that look these border crossings or at least these crossings across the channel last year they accounted for about 0.6 percent of people actually coming into the country which is completely true but at the same time people in this country are concerned about immigration more broadly you can't just take this one bit of it and then dismiss it and i think what that really expresses a lot of that discussion this tendency to say this isn't an issue at all is because they don't want to talk about it there's this kind of tendency amongst allegedly pro-migration people as if they would almost rather the status quo, i.e. a system in which you do have people in some cases making very perilous journeys, rather than actually having the discussion openly and potentially losing it, like rather than actually getting to a position where you might be able to argue for a system which was far more open, which allowed people to come here in a way that was actually safe. They'd rather the status quo because they don't trust in their own arguments. They don't trust in the public to be able to deal with this discussion. And of course, undergirding that is, is a, a firm conviction, it feels like, from these people that having this discussion at all is dangerous. We saw some of this in the policing of language around this this week, people saying that even using the phrase illegal immigrant is something which is potentially xenophobic and going to stir up hate, even though in the current status quo, it's just a term that describes a certain status on behalf of some people. You saw this really weird discussion about how it was morally reprehensible for Sky News and the BBC to even be filming people making the crossing for them, even to be giving kind of any credence to the idea that there is some sort of crisis here. And I find that really quite strange. I think it again speaks to a, a failure of conviction on the part of these people and a refusal to believe that people are actually open to persuasion on these issues. And I think that's something which is only going to really fundamentally set back the argument for immigration. It's going to in inflame this even more as a kind of culture war issue. And I think it also gets away from the sort of argument you would need to be making, which is one on the basis of freedom, which is one on the basis of autonomy. This tendency really only to present this as a straightforward issue of um, refugees fleeing war, which again is not the whole picture. Some of these people are just coming here from 
very poor parts of the world because they want a better life. And rather than make an argument on those terms, they resort to these kind of quite moralistic, faux humanitarian arguments, which can only invite certain counters like, well, they're not fleeing war, they're fleeing France. So again, we end up in this kind of very circular cultural argument. We get further away from where we need to be, which is an open, honest discussion about immigration. And I think, if anything, the pro-migrant side in this has demonstrated they are a fundamental block to us actually getting towards a more liberal policy at this point, because they just strike people as disingenuous, patronising, and possessed by a sense that they're fundamentally right, despite the fact they don't even seem to be able to explain why themselves. I, th- I think that's exactly right. And and it's clear to me that, you know, both sides or the extreme ends of both sides are dehumanising migrants, essentially. You know, it's not just the invasion language, but the way that migrants are talked about as perennial victims, they're only here because they would be suffering otherwise, or they're all refugees or they're all poor or, you know, and, and then the other way of seeing migrants is that they're all saints, you know, they're only here for, for our own good and, you know, to, to help our NHS and all, all that kind of talk. And it's like, well, maybe they're just normal people with normal aspirations, a bit like you and me. But the problem is, as you say, Tom, is that these people cannot make arguments in terms of freedom and autonomy because, A, they don't believe in freedom and autonomy for people in this country anyway. So, you know, why would they extend that to migrants? And that means that, yeah, you know, suddenly they're accorded this special status and we're further away from where we need to be in actually making a case for a more liberal policy. And and as I said, you know, both sides do have to take the blame here. It's it's upsetting the way the right wants to turn this into a culture war. I saw, you know, Priti Patel said recently, and I quote, that she was going to come up with an asylum policy that would send the left into meltdown. And you think, well, Okay, owning the libs, is that really how we're coming up with policy now? It's it's one thing, it's absolutely fine and absolutely right to make a robust speech about an issue that is going to annoy your opponents, that's going to really get their back up. That's the rough and tumble of politics. But do we really want to make policy on that basis just to wind people up, essentially? Ella? You have to think what it must feel like to actually be a migrant, because in both sides of this debate, as you say, Fraser, you get dehumanised and you also just get t- treated like a a pawn in someone else's game. So on the one hand, people who are, you know, quite often pro-EU, pro the idea of um, free movement, and very much like to pull on the heartstrings about migrants and refugees, when they're not talking about them as people who need to be saved, they're people who do our dirty work. So it's like, I can't tell you how many times throughout the Brexit debate that I heard people say, well, who's going to, you know, wipe my parents' ass when they're in a care home? Who's going to serve us coffee? Who's going to pick our fruit? You know, who's, who's going to do the jobs that English kids don't want to do? Like, as if that's the only purpose that migrants serve is to fulfill job roles rather than actually be individuals who contribute to civic society. But then there's also a huge amount of myth-making around it on the other side. It's quite often that you get the most fervent anti-immigrant sentiment in places that don't actually see a huge number of immigrants coming and living there. I mean, part of the problem is that for a a very long time, and both the Labour Party, in fact, quite viciously historically throughout the Labour Party's tradition, and in the Conservative Party, governments have used migrants as a means to deflect blame from themselves. So it's the classic thing that when people see that there aren't resources in terms of jobs or housing or 
opportunities in their local area, it's very convenient for a government to point to the fact that there's a scarcity and that actually migrants are taking all their jobs rather than having to answer the question of why aren't you producing enough for us all. It's not true that we're an overpopulated country. It's not true that we've got no more room. It's not true that we're under siege. But what we do have to have is exactly the point that you've both been making is a conversation about this, which does the difficult thing of confronting some prejudices on both sides, both the kind of elitism of the so-called pro-migrant lobby and the prejudice of people who are sort of scaremongering around a problem with migrants that doesn't actually exist. And in having that perhaps painful debate, we might actually get to a position which we'd like to see, which is where you have a fair and open migrant system that benefits everyone. I think it's just worth pointing out as well, a lot of these people who claim to care so much about immigration, at best, that's part of the picture here. You know, the, the overlap between people who are very incensed by Farage going out and doing his little pieces of citizens journalism, who all supported the European Union, which if you want to talk about a brutal migration policy, that is the European Union summed up, you know, spending billions of euros to pay North African dictators, warlords to stop people getting to the Mediterranean, to stop getting into Europe. So I think we should take no lectures from those kinds of people fundamentally. And I think it also speaks to the fact that this is partly about immigration. I'm sure they're in favour of it in a kind of abstract sense. As Ella says, I'm sure they're quite fond of their cleaner and their au pair. But other than that, it's also because they see migration, EU free movement, etc., as something which undermines national sovereignty or which proves the pointlessness of national sovereignty as they would see it in this kind of world. You know, all of the kind of sneering recently about saying, oh, we've taken back control, but now we're asking France to police our border as if the whole issue of immigration just is fundamentally undermines the idea that you could have a democratic nation state that would set its own policies in immigration and everything else. And whilst I think that exposes the elitism of a lot of these people, the fact that a lot of this doesn't actually have much to do with migrants, I think it also gets us further away again from where we need to be. Because if you want to put migration on a firm footing, a safer footing than people actually having to, you know, cross one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world to try and get here, then you need to have a national conversation in which people feel that they have a stake, in which people feel that their views are listened to, and in which there is genuine democratic control. And the fact that none of these people are interested in that, I think, again, demonstrates not only the weakness of this particular movement, but also the, the fact that it could potentially set us back in relation to a lot of these things. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. At the weekend, Labour MP Dawn Butler was stopped by police while driving in Hackney. She accused the police of racial profiling. The police explained at the time that they had made a mistake in entering the car's number plate, and so the car came up as out of town on their database. Nonetheless, Butler maintains that you cannot drive around and enjoy a Sunday afternoon while black. Also this week, the BBC's Director General apologised for airing a news report which contained the N-word. The report was about a racist attack and the family of the victim had given their blessing for the word to be used to show the reality of racist violence. But thousands of people, who probably never even saw the report when it aired, complained to the BBC. A DJ at One Extra resigned, and a group of black professional women has called for a 24-hour boycott of the BBC. 
And they've even suggested that the news report could be a hate crime. Tom, I suppose the key question here is who gets to decide if these incidents are racist or not? No, I think that's a really important question. And I think we saw that play out across those two stories. And the Dawn Butler case, I thought it was interesting because, you know, a lot of people very understandably questioned how she knew with such firm conviction that the reason she was stopped, despite the fact that the police put it down to this particular error, was down to racial profiling, cut and dry, quite simple. She provided no evidence of this necessarily. Again, to the extent that we have footage of the exchange, it seems pretty cordial. I think it's fair enough to question the kind of policy of stopping cars without a town number plates in a particularly high crime area full stop and how that could potentially be over-policing. All of that is a legitimate discussion to have, but very little was actually presented in this case that she was, as she claimed, the sort of victim of racial profiling. I think it was interesting because when you raise any of these criticisms, you know, the response you get from Labourites and, and left-wingers is always to say, you know, how dare you kind of criticise the perspective of a black woman experiencing racism? I thought it was quite interesting that in this case, they're very willing for racism to be in the eye of the beholder. But at the same time, when it was the case of anti-Semitism, they were very willing to say, you've got this wrong and here's why. This is actually just a Tory plot to unseat Jeremy Corbyn. So there's obviously people recognise, even the ones who have weaponised the the um, Dawn Butler case, the fact that it can't purely be in the eyes of the beholder. There's always going to be some kind of objective criteria. You know, intent is going to be important in all of this. And I think that's that kind of links in a little bit with the BBC story in which you have this really bizarre long-running controversy, which again seems to centre on what is a sort of debatable proposition. Was it appropriate for this particular news report to use the N-word in relaying this particularly horrendous, allegedly racially aggravated attack that happened in Bristol in which this word apparently featured. Is that something which is needlessly unsettling to hear in the middle of an afternoon news report or not? But the discussion very quickly became about how this was kind of de facto racist, the idea that it expressed actually the kind of racist heart of the BBC and this kind of refusal to accept that there is even any level of debate in the midst of this at all. And again, the fact that the keeps needs stressing here is that the victim's family, a guy called K-Dog, who again has had, you know, his, his broken bones in his face, his leg, his arms, really seriously messed up by that attack. And his family explicitly wanted the N-word to be used or supported the decision at least because they wanted the full extent of the attacks to be um, made clear. So again, there kind of, you know, whether or not this is who makes this decision was not entirely clear. It just does feel like so much of, if we are to kind of draw a bit of a thread between these two slightly different cases, is to say that so much of our discussion around racism is often around kind of quite nebulous ideas of offence. It's around quite kind of debatable propositions about what language is acceptable to use and about often quite flimsy assertions of one's lived experience rather than anything kind of hard or concrete. And I think that's one of the things which really vexes a lot of these discussions and gets us into a really weird place as we did this week where people are openly and quite strangely arguing that the BBC's output has a genuine problem of anti-black racism, which, you know, the BBC's got many problems. I don't think that's one of the ones it does have. But in this, in this climate, it's quite easy for those accusations to be made en masse, it feels like. Ella. It's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously this is all happening at a time when we've had a very heightened and frenetic discussion about racism since the murder of George Floyd. In some cases, discussions that should be had about the way in which the police interact with particularly young black guys. In some cases, there have been ridiculous fights over language, over offence, over minor, as they're called, microaggressions that are sort of shot to prominence now that we all are supposed to be talking about race, despite Renee Ede Lodge telling us that she's not going to talk about it anymore. And, but I have to admit that I was confused about these events. The Dawn Butler one was tricky because you kind of wish that she'd made a bigger point about the fact that police shouldn't be stopping you full stop, even if it was for coronavirus, because it's an infringement upon 
liberty. Why on earth do you need to know where I'm going? But the fact that they did mention knife crime, the fact that they made a big fuss about not being able to see in the back of her car. I mean, that is an experience that many, many black people, not just young black guys have had, and it's unnecessary. And I think we should always combat police intrusion into people's personal lives when it's not necessary. And it did seem incredibly unnecessary. And for me, it doesn't really matter how polite the policeman was. I was pissed off for her about that. Then again, spinning that off into a kind of evidence of the fact that we live in an institutionally racist society and linking it to Black Lives Matter and all of that kind of lost me there. The same way with the BBC incident, as Tom says, it's quite obvious that the use of the N-word in that situation, which was to make a point of revealing how serious that attack was, was to me entirely justified because it was actually sort of making a quasi-political point of saying, this was a terrible attack. This is a derogatory and terrible word. Look at how serious this is and learn from it. It's just unfortunate that it happened at the same time that the historian Lucy Worsley used the N-word in a situation that was rather more difficult to defend in a program. It's sort of, and the people were commenting on the fact that it sounded like she was kind of using it in a salacious way to provoke a response. And so the point I'm trying to make is that tensions are very much heightened around the issue of race. And so you can understand people being sort of knee-jerk in their reactions to this. The important point is to take a step back and saying, as Tom says, is it the case that the BBC is institutionally racist? No. Is it the case that the police are institutionally racist? Let's have a debate about that. But this kind of desire to almost treat particularly the words, the N-words, a bit like it's a bit like Voldemort. It's like you can't say it in any context or something evil will happen. Stripping out the nuance, stripping out context with these issues just leaves us not being able to have a debate about more serious things and more importantly, how to change and combat racism. And I think the, what's really unfortunate is that, you know, the law itself actually strips words like this of of their context. So under British hate crime law, it's there's no need for intent, but it's the perception of the victim did they perceive an incident to be racist or any other person in the vicinity? Did they perceive an issue to be racist? So, you know, one example of that was a young girl called Chelsea Russell who posted some rap lyrics on her Instagram and it included the N-word. And it was this amazing, you know, astonishing feat where a police officer said that the context in which you use that word is irrelevant. And well, I'm afraid everyone knows that it's it has a completely different connotation in rap than it does as a racist insult. But, you know, because of the way we talk about racism now, the way we think about offence and hate crime and hate speech, that context has been completely erased, which has very dangerous consequences for freedom. And I think it's often, like you say, it's the kind of it's the collapsing together of all kinds of different claims into, into one big soup, as into one big discussion, which can really mystify things. And in some cases, actually kind of almost underplay the seriousness of certain situations. I think Ella's, Ella's right to say that we shouldn't be dismissive of concerns around over-policing and all the rest of it. You know, you do have to be sort of like living on a cloud if you don't genuinely think that, say, young black men in Hackney are not going to have more interactions with the police, often many of them unwarranted, um, than a young white guy in Hampshire. Like, that's just obviously not the case. Is that institutional racism? There's a debate to be had about all that kind of stuff. You know, why is it that that is the, is the state of play? But the thing that I thought was, was fascinating, it's interesting to make the point about hate crime, Fraser, is um, there was 
one professional business group who were calling for a boycott of the BBC over the N-word controversy. And they actually explicitly said that they think the reporter's use of it could constitute a race hate crime. And I thought that was kind of interesting because on the one hand, they probably could kind of be true (laughs) given how um, (laughs) woolly these discussions are. But the one thing that I think that really made clear was that in that whole discussion and the controversy about that particular BBC News report, you take a step back for a minute and you realise that people have been expending far more outrage at a BBC News reporter's potentially questionable use or potentially questionable quoting of this word rather than the fact that it was allegedly spat at a young black man as he was run over by a car. And I think that kind of mm. speaks to the very skewed priorities that you end up with when you do buy into this idea that words wound, that language and culture is basically everything. And that almost the fight against racism is about that stuff rather than about far more concrete things in society. And I think that particular case and that particularly very strange accusation really summed up a lot of that. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.